0: Lord, let what we believe be what we live. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Kiddos, good morning. Most of them are gone on the camping trip, but there are some of you kiddos here. Good morning. Kids, uh, your program starts now. You can head on back and we will miss having you here for the rest of the service. The rest of you, good morning to you as well. It's a joy to be with you. Those of you who are online as well as in person. Many of you have heard me tell this story before, but I think it's a story that's worth telling again because of where we find ourselves this morning. One day when she was in high school, uh, my daughter Molly said to me, you know what, Dad, our family is really weird. And then she paused and she smiled and she said, but I love the ways our family is weird. As our kids were growing up, we had some pretty specific values that we tried to live out together. The priority of family time on a regular basis, even if that meant that our kids couldn't get together with their friends on a particular night. Or showing affection openly instead of doing the whole eye roll thing when parents were around. Or one activity per kid per season and whenever possible the other kids showing up to that activity. Or limited technology and screen time. Or family dinners around the table with no phones. Or regular hospitality at our table with the kids being a a a full part of that. Those are some of the values that we sought to inculcate in our family. And and I like to think that that's what Molly was thinking about when she said we had a weird family and she liked it. But then again, maybe what she had in mind was just the fact that often our dinner table conversation would degenerate into puns flying around the table. Or uh, maybe the way that often at the end of a meal, some of us, not all of us, some unnamed ones of us would tend to wad up our napkins and throw them across the table at each other. Or um, maybe that the array of family pets that we had included tarantulas, anoles, garter snakes, hummingbirds, and a variety of other things. Or maybe some of the amusing antics that would define our family vacations when we would all pile into our old suburban and everybody would stake out their respective territory and then we would hit the road together or any of a number of other things that just made us quirky as a family. We're walking through a series this morning about what makes covenant covenant. We began two weeks ago with our essential beliefs. We believe Jesus Christ alone is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We believe the Bible is fully trustworthy and authoritative. We believe the church exists to proclaim and to live out the love of God. And the way that we articulate and affirm our beliefs as a church is informed by the spirit of our denomination's motto, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Then we spent some time last Sunday exploring our calling and the collective statements that that affirm and surround that. Our defining starting point, Jesus is king. Our identity and purpose is a result of that. We are his people who exist for his kingdom and his glory, as we just sang. Our call is to know Jesus, to grow with his people, and to go to the world. And God's invitation to us in this season is for us to become a church known for our love. Now, up to this point, between our beliefs and our calling, probably what we've affirmed, most other Christ-centered and Bible-believing, Bible-based churches would affirm as well. Now we come to our values. The word value communicates two things, doesn't it? It gets at what we consider to be valuable or worthwhile, what matters to us. But it also gets at the way that we do things around here, our approach to things, what we aspire to together, what we want to be like. What we're trying to capture with these words is a collection, is a collection of things that make us distinctive, distinctive. And we certainly don't mean to communicate that these are things that we value and other churches don't, not at all. What we're saying is that the beliefs that most define us, that we most emphasize around here, conspire together to lead us to live life together in a certain way, with a cluster of values that when lived alongside one another, make us unique, distinctive, even a bit weird. Did you know that the root meaning of the word holy is the idea of being distinctive? Today we're talking about how we do things in our family, what makes us distinctive as a church, and hopefully what makes us holy. So before we talk about that, let me just tell you, so that we're really clear about this, what we're not talking about. We are not talking about style. We live in a world of surface impressions with little real substance and depth. In our one-inch-deep world, style is is all a matter of surface. It's a look. It's a carefully curated impression that is meant to send a message. Here's, Here's how I want you to think about me. Here's what I want you to think makes me unique or sets me apart or makes me attractive. This is my look. This is my style. Whether it be grunge, vintage, outdoors, classic, nerdy geeky, Business cash, boho, sportswear, loungewear, casual chic, goth, punk, world ethnic, traditional military, biker, kawaii, log and look, garcon, modern urban, hip hop, western surf skate, artsy, hunter camo, rocker, 50s, 70s, preppy, streetwear, or Euro metro. Did I include everybody? Anybody I missed in that? We all wear clothes, but we each wear them in a unique way. And these ways that we try to express our individuality through our outward appearance are our look, our style, carefully managed appearances. That is not what we're talking about at all this morning. When we talk about values, we're not talking about a niche that we're trying to occupy to appeal to customers in a church shopping market. This isn't about product differentiation, trying to make ourselves more attractive to a particular target market. We're not about that. At all, Covenant, we don't accept a consumer approach to church or to the Christian life. It is not about shopping for our preferences or trying to get my needs met. We're talking about something on the opposite end from style. When we talk about our values, we we are pointing to things that run deep in us that are connected directly to and are the direct outworking of our essential beliefs and our calling. Our values are the lived implications of our belief and calling. To put it another way, our values are the way that we do things in our family. Other families do things in different ways. In our family, this is how we do things. Because they are directly connected to our beliefs and our calling, our values are both aspirational and descriptive. They are things that we want to be true of us, and because we have aspired to them for so long, they are things that more and more are becoming true of us. Here are covenant's values. Toward God, we are expectant and yielded. Toward scripture and the way we think about the Christian life, we are thoughtful. And towards others, we are intentional and gracious. And as we'll see as we walk through these, every one of these can be traced back directly to what we believe and what we believe our call is. What do you do with a belief? You believe it. You put the weight of your life on it. What do you do with a calling? You say yes to it. You commit to it. You obey it. What do you do with a value? Informed by it, shaped by it, aspire to it, cultivate it, embody it, live it out. I want to try something with you this morning. As I walk through these five values, I want you to participate in this message with me. And here's how. Normally, I would encourage you to put your phones away during worship, unless you're using it to access scripture or to take notes. But this morning, I want to encourage you to get out your phones. And if you are with us uh, live via our online, uh, we want you to take part of this in well. If you don't already have the phone number for our covenant screen text number. It's up on the screen now. I want you to enter this into your phone. Just maybe put it in your uh, directory as a covenant screen number. 765-237-9202. As we go through this this message this morning and describe these values, I guarantee you that, that individual members of the covenant family will start popping into your mind as people who embody these qualities. And what I'd like to ask you to do this morning, if you would, is to just be a, begin to text those to that number, just the first name only, and it will uh, go up through our amazing tech team and those names will begin to show up on the screen. And I think you'll find this to be not only a fun, interactive way to do this, but also incredibly affirming and encouraging of who we are as a church family. So the number again, 765-237-9202, just as soon as we start into each value, start texting the people who come to mind, first name only. All right, our first value, toward God, we desire to be expectant. Specifically, we want to be expectant related to the presence and involvement of God in every part of life. I told you that every one of our values uh, uh, traces back to our beliefs and our calling, and that is certainly true of this one. At the end of Matthew, just before Jesus ascended to take his place on the throne, he said, look, behold, look around you, notice this, don't miss this. I want you to see this. I am with you every single day to the very end of the age. Because we deeply believe that Jesus is not just the savior who died for us, but is the risen and present Lord living in our midst. We believe that Jesus is alive and involved in every part of life. He is in every conversation, every decision, every moment. As we walk through the day, Jesus walks with us. Whatever we are about, alone or together, God is in what we do. So we expect to encounter him, to be met by him, to be led by him, to be encouraged by him, to be strengthened by him. So we walk through life asking, what is God doing in our midst? Where do I see evidence of him? How is he working? How does he desire to meet us? How does he desire to meet me? Who are the people in the covenant family that you can think of? I know some of the names are already showing up up here. Who are some of the people that you think of who embody this quality? Here's some of what this will mean for us to be expectant people. For us as expectant people, prayer is never perfunctory. It's never just the way we, we open or close a meeting or walk through a list of needs. Prayer is conversation with the living, loving, present God, acknowledging the presence of the King and inviting his full participation in whatever we're doing. For us as expectant people, worship is never a mere recital of qualities that are true about God, as though God were not in the room with us. Worship is an encounter with the living God. I love how Travis keeps helping us to discover that as the truest thing of all about our worship. Around here, we talk about coming to a place in our worship service where we, we will shift as God leads us in worship from he is to you are. As, as he comes into our gaze and we encounter the living God and we honor and extol him and are changed by that encounter. And as expectant people, whenever we come together for whatever reason, not just for worship, but for meetings or studies or meals or, or to serve, we believe that God is in our midst and that he will use that time in each of our lives. Matthew eighteen twenty, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my, aim, in my name, I am there among them. The expectant person expects to bump into God at every turn. As with all of these values, there are so many in the covenant family who embody this one. But I do think especially of my wife, Sharon. What about you? Who has come to your mind? All right. Our second value has to do with how we relate to God as well. We're not just expectant, we are yielded. Other ways of saying yielded, surrendered, fully available, saying yes to God, giving him our total allegiance. That's the quality that Mary showed so beautifully when she was told that she would carry God's son. She said, I am the Lord's servant and I am willing to do whatever he wants. We believe that Jesus not only walks in this world, but that he reigns over it. He is the king which means that we who are his followers are also his subjects. He not only walks beside us, but he rules over us. He's not only in every conversation and every decision and every moment. He is over every conversation and every decision and every moment. Because we deeply believe that Jesus' rightful place in our lives is to rule over us as king of kings. We don't just focus on his saving work here at Covenant. Covenant or his triumph over sin and death, or his securing eternal life for us. Crucial as those things are to our understanding of the gospel. We emphasize his kingship as well. I was thinking about this, this is kind of uh, awkward and clunky, but we are sort of king evangelicals instead of just evangelicals. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven and was seated on the throne where he now reigns, and he desires that our lives would reflect his rule. Who are the people who embody that posture of yieldedness? Here are some of the implications. As yielded people, we begin each day by offering ourselves back to God. I belong to you, Lord. What are you calling me to do today? What would you have of me? How would you lead me? And we surrender our lives to his loving rule every day and often through the day. As Jeremiah 10, 17 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for a man to direct his steps. So, Lord, how would you direct my steps today? And as yielded people, those of us who are in positions of leadership, believing that Jesus really is the living head of this church, we understand that it is Jesus' work to lead the church, and it is our work to lead as we are led. Rather than deciding out of our own power and our wisdom, we see our role as discerning, discerning God's will, discerning God's heart and pleasure, what he already knows that he wants us to do. That means that prayerful listening is not an afterthought in our leadership, but stands at the center of our leadership, We spend time in prayer and scripture study every time the elders gather together, and any elder at any time can call for us to pause and to pray and to seek God's continued leading. And our goal, because of that, is unity, being one in spirit and in purpose, not some sort of conformity or uniformity. Who are those who embody this in the covenant family as you think about this quality Again, there are so many people that, uh, so many of you that flash into my mind. I do think of Joshua and Susan Hyde, and I also think of Daniel and Emily Sampson as two among many who embody this. As we come to our third value, we shift from how we relate to God to how we relate to the scriptures and how we think about the Christian life. In our approach to the faith and our study of scripture, we desire to be thoughtful One of our essentials is the belief that God has revealed himself to us in his word. So we are confident that the Bible is fully trustworthy and authoritative, making known all that we need to know about God and the life that he has for us. But that authoritative word comes to us not in a tidy, encyclopedic compendium of information about God. Where I could just flip to the chapter on prayer or I could flip to the chapter on the Holy Spirit Instead, it comes to us in 66 books written by 40 authors over more than 1,000 years in at least 10 different literary genres in five different cultures in three different languages. Implication, we all need to be students of Scripture. And it isn't always easy. Because of that, Because of of our recognition of that, rather than talking around here about taking the Bible literally, we talk about taking the Bible seriously, really digging into it to seek to understand what it communicates. We believe that part of what that means, part of what it means for us to love God with all of our hearts and souls and minds is that we should use those minds of ours that he has given to us to be thoughtful in our approach to the faith and to the study of Scripture. There's a really big and a really important difference between being thoughtful and being intellectual. We are not interested in just acquiring more information about the Bible, and we are even less interested in putting our Bible knowledge on display. Our desire is to understand the Bible and to stand under it, to submit to it, integrating its truth into our lives and being formed by the Bible in the hands of the Spirit of God into people of grace and wisdom. That is the end of our study. Paul describes the goal of scripture study in 2 Corinthians 10:5 that we would be able to take every thought captive for Christ and we believe that thoughtful study and faithful interpretation of the Bible is key to that. It's a sort of quality that we see in the Berean Christians in Acts chapter 17 verse 11. It says they eagerly received the message as Paul preached to them, and then they examined the scriptures carefully every day to see if what he said was so, to see if it was true. Who are those in our church family who embody this quality? I see that several of these names have already come to mind. Here are some of the implications. As thoughtful Christians... We believe that knowing the scriptures thoroughly, studying the scriptures carefully, and applying the Bible faithfully is the responsibility of every follower of Christ, not just the people who get the opportunity to talk every Sunday up here. We are committed to reading the Bible for transformation, and not merely for information. Not only studying the Bible, but also reading it devotionally, memorizing it, reflecting on its truths, praying it. The more we immerse ourselves in scripture, the more God by his spirit will be able to use it in his transforming work in our lives. Another implication is thoughtful Christians, we are committed to using our minds to understand the Bible and to stand under its authority not to pick and choose, not to determine through our own reason which parts remain authoritative and which are no longer relevant to us today. We join together with the church worldwide in affirming the lordship of Jesus and the authority of scripture and the missional nature of the church, embodying the love of God as biblical essentials for the faith, essentials that we want to live for and that we want to be willing to suffer and even to die for. As thoughtful Christians, we are committed to the idea of theological modesty in non-essentials of the faith. That means that we are committed to knowing the difference between which are our essentials and which are not. We are committed to the idea of theological modesty in non-essential areas of faith, where are, there are different, reasonable, biblically grounded views within the church, including not only theological areas such as how the church should be governed, or the work of the Holy Spirit today, or how the end times will unfold but also such complex areas as politics, economics, and other societal issues, none of which the Bible addresses directly. Theological modesty acknowledges that there are others who love Jesus more than we do, who have studied the scriptures more carefully than we have, who've come out in different places on these issues. One more implication here, as thoughtful Christians, we are committed to thoughtful engagement with non-Christians who don't acknowledge the Bible's universal authority. We affirm without qualification that the Bible is fully trustworthy. It is true. It is authoritative. But you won't hear us saying the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Because too often that ends conversations about what the Bible teaches rather than beginning them. We want to approach conversations with those with whom we disagree, with grace and with honor, practicing curiosity and courtesy and inviting discussion rather than shutting conversations down. You've already acknowledged a number of people who uh, embody this value. Some of those who come immediately to mind are David Isles, Ann Spooth, Mike Zintera. Our last two values have to do with how we relate to others. In our dealings with others, we believe that God desires us to be intentional. One of the richest theological terms is the idea of prevenient grace. It means grace that goes before. It refers to the way that God always takes the first step with us. He pursued us before it ever occurred to us to pursue him, and he loved us before we were ever capable of loving him. As his people, God calls us to imitate his pursuing love in our interactions with others. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Who are those who exemplify this value in our midst, in our church family? Some implications, as intentional people, we take responsibility for our own spiritual growth. We recognize that God expects us to grow and mature. So we are committed to getting ourselves involved in the life and ministry of the church and building relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ rather than waiting for someone else to invite us in. As intentional people, we are committed to risking moving toward those people that God places around us rather than holding back, hesitant and waiting. We live in a world of cautious and hesitant people, each one waiting for the other one to take that first step. God calls us to mirror his initiative and to take a risk by moving toward one another, showing regard, reflecting interest, asking questions, following up with more questions. Initiative opens us up to risk. What if I'm rejected or hurt or misunderstood? But that is a risk that we are willing to take in order to imitate God and His and to put his love on display. And as intentional people, we are committed to taking the first step with our neighbors as well, regardless of whether or not they share our beliefs or our convictions. In a world that has an increasingly negative view of the church, our taking the initiative to show love and concern for our neighbors will go a long way to overcoming barriers to faith among those that God has placed around us in this world. Just in the past month, we had several uh, or two new families move into our neighborhood. So I uh, finally got around to redoing the directory that I had come up with our neighborhood. Then I took it around to the houses yesterday. And as I came up to one house, the, the next most recent neighbor came running out of the front door and said, I know what you're doing. And she came over and we had a conversation. She said, thanks so much for doing this. It just helps the rest of us so much as we try to get to know each other. You know, I'll be honest, I think every single person on our street, me included, thought, you know, it'd be really helpful to have a directory for our neighborhood. So I guess after a few decades, I decided it was time to step in and do that. God calls us to be intentional. Among the many people who exhibit this quality in the covenant family, uh, those who came immediately to mind were. Dulcie Abraham and Joe Ely and uh, Tanner Sizemore and Lewis Tay. Our final value is another way that we believe that God would have us to deal with one another, and that is by being gracious. Grace is giving love that is undeserved and unearned. It's so easy to show love to those who love us well, to those who love us first. But love becomes difficult when we've been hurt or missed or or slighted or neglected. God's way of relating to us is to be gracious. Even while we were undeserving sinners, we are told in Romans, Christ died for us. If we are followers of Christ, we have all been on the receiving end of grace. God calls us then to turn around as recipients of grace and to be distributors of that grace to those that he places around us. As Jesus says in Luke chapter, chapter 6, verse 32, if you love only those who love you, what sort of grace is that? Who are those in the covenant family who embody this quality? One of the ways the truth of the Christian faith is best demonstrated, I believe, I think this is a really important thought, one of the ways the truth of the Christian faith is best demonstrated is when followers of Christ are marked by qualities for which there is no good earthly explanation. Why on earth would you do that? I believe that grace is one of those. When the Muslim Brotherhood began to burn down churches in Egypt during the Arab Spring, Christians painted on the sides of the burned out shells of their churches We forgive you. And speaking with an Egyptian friend who was there in the midst of that when that was all unfolding, our friend Nassan, who many of you have had a chance to meet, he said that many hundreds, and he thinks thousands of Muslims, became followers of Christ just as a result of that gracious response to that hate. As gracious people, we understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is perfect. Each of us is doing the best that we know how. Living in community means that we will inevitably experience conflict and hurt in our relationships with each other. We cannot escape it, not until we go to be together before the Lord in heaven. So when we are wronged by our brothers and sisters, and we will be, and we will be again, We forgive and we bless. Extending grace becomes one of the most important practices there is in the church for preserving its peace and unity until Jesus returns or we go to be with him. Another implication is gracious people, we believe that wrongs and hurts don't need to have the last word. When we are hurt, it is so tempting to harbor that hurt, to to recite our wrongs, to pull back, to backpedal in self-protection. But when we are wronged, God calls us to move forward in grace and forgiveness, seeking reconciliation. In the family of faith, only our refusing to forgive is fatal to relationships. As gracious people, we understand that when we are gracious to our non-Christian neighbors, we are not the innocent being gracious to the guilty, or the pure being gracious to the impure. We are fellow sinners extending undeserved grace just as it has been extended to us. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The king asks the unforgiving servant in the parable that Jesus tells. A final implication, as gracious people, we are exceedingly careful about the way that we use social media. To build up and not to tear down. To unite and not to divide. Again, there are many who've come to your mind uh, who exemplify this value of grace. I think of dearly uh, departed saints, Carolyn Moses, Charlotte Walker, and Margie Heaston. And I also think of Sang Wu, Tom Rice, Daniel Pierce, and Alan Sutton. Expectant. Yielded. Intentional. Excuse me, thoughtful, intentional, and gracious. That's how we do things in our family. So I invite you now to spend a moment in conversation with the Lord. Is there one of these qualities that, that you realize? to your encouragement that Jesus is already forming in you or that someone in the church family is affirmed as being descriptive of you. Give thanks to God for that now. And as we went through these, is there one of these qualities that kind of leapt out as the thing that God wants to do now in your life or the thing he wants to do next? What would it look like for you to offer him your cooperation? Jesus, these things that are true of you, We pray that you would make them true of us as well.